You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, so my name is Kieran O'Neill. I'm Deputy Director here at Trinity Longroom Hub and we're halfway through Thursday on our uh, Arts and Humanities Research Festival. This is going brilliantly. Thank you all for contributing to it. Uh, the next session uh, we're really looking forward to. We're joined by our colleague in the School of English, Professor Aileen Douglas. Uh, Aileen is professor of 18th century and studies and teaches in the School of English. Her publications include the recent and excellent uh, work in hand, script, print, and writing, 1690 to 1840. It was published by OUP in 2017. And her co edition of Goldsmith's The Vicar of Wakefield is forthcoming from Cambridge University Press just next year. So, Aileen, over to you. You're going to talk to us about children's voices in the novel. Thank you. Thanks, Kieran. I can't believe the level of activity there's been in this building all week. Um, unfortunately, there's also activity going on in the art building with teaching, so we can't be here all the time, but um, it has been uh, fantastic. Um, so yesterday, I was in the concourse of the arts building, and I stopped by for some booth banter, um, where some of my colleagues, postgraduates in the School of English, um, all of them involved in children's literature, uh, were hosting um, and this presentation came up and um, I was told that really with a title like that I could talk about almost anything so maybe I should uh, go in for some refinement uh, here. So I'm interested in when and why uh, children first begin to appear in fiction uh, in English and to sharpen the focus further, I'm going to talk in the latter part of the presentation on the circumstances in which we first begin to hear, in fiction, children's voices. Because actually it's quite a gap between you know, a representation of childhood and the figure of a child and a, a child's voice animating a particular text, so uh, kind of moving uh, between those. Um, so I suppose one way of thinking about what's going to follow in the next uh, 25 minutes or so is that it's a, a sort of aural version of Where's Wally, the children's book, if you know that, where instead of seeking out uh, Wally, a visual representation, we'll be listening out uh, for the voices of his peers, even if they're separated uh, by several hundred years. So if we think about the story of the novel in English, fiction in English, we know that at the end of the 17th and at the beginning of the 18th century, there's kind of a shift, there's a big change. Uh, so certain romance features, elevated language, extraordinary events um, fade away and fiction becomes more everyday. Uh, it seems to take place in a recognisable world in space and uh, time. So you get ordinary characters uh, going about their business uh, in recognisable locations. And people talk about this, critics talk about this as the rise of the novel, which sort of rises um, right across the 18th century. Can everyone hear me, um, by the way? Okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the thumbs up there from the back of the room. So children don't feature prominently in many of the novels that constitute the novel's rise. If you think about uh, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe from 1719, uh, Robinson Crusoe is very keen to get on with 
being enslaved and island life. And so within a few pages, uh, he's uh, left home. By the 1740s and 50s, however, we do begin to get accounts of fictional uh, childhoods. The Scottish novelist, Tobias Smollett, uh, he gives a couple of chapters detailing the rather brutal um, education of his hero, uh, Roderick Random, in 1748, while the Irish uh, writer, William Chaunieux, gives a noteworthy version of the childhood of his hero, Jack Connor, in the Irish Midlands in 1752. Um, and actually, my colleague, Charlotte Colleen, has recently uh, written brilliantly about this particular uh, book in, uh, in his study um, of Anglo-Irish childhood. So in this case, the narrative includes young Jack's direct speech, so we hear his voice. Abandoned by his mother, Jack finds shelter in a country house stable where he's uh, visited by the steward. And I was just discussing uh, with Kieran earlier how in order to add to the informality of the proceedings, I was actually going to read from the books themselves rather than uh, from um, a typescript. So um, here we go. Uh, Mr. Kindly, with uh, the names are somewhat suggestive of the characters um, in this novel. Mr. Kindly um, cried out, um, what have we got here? Where did you come from, child? Indeed, sir, replied Jack, almost in tears. I don't know. Don't cry, my dear, said the good steward. I shall do you no harm. Have you a mother? And where has she gone to? I don't know indeed, sir, replied Jack. But she gave me to my man to see my aunt and bid me stay at the gate. And so I did, and he didn't come back for me. That's my good boy, said kindly. Come, now tell me all the rest. The poor child was not at a loss, but told as much of his affairs as he possibly could know, and in so innocent a manner that he greatly pleased the good man. Both of these novels, uh, Roderick Random and uh, the uh, history of Jack Connor, move their heroes through kaleidoscopic adventures involving extensive travels, uh, warfare, amorous intrigue, quite a lot of amorous intrigue of various kinds, and the acquisition of wealth, before eventually returning them to their native places. On the one hand, they are histories and adventures that require an adult protagonist, but on the other, they are novels about the regulation or writing of social identity, and the childhood figure is a significant marker, one that's both returned to and written over. They're also quite interesting on the topic of national identity, but that's uh, for another day. There's an odd novel from the 1760s where we might expect a child's voice, but one does not materialise. And I'm thinking of Lawrence Stern's The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. So if you know this book, you know that um, it begins with a rather racy beginning, um, an act of conception um, uh, where uh, the, the narrator, the adult narrator, uh, begins, I wish either my father or my mother, or indeed both of them, as they were in duty equally bound to do, 
had minded what they were about when they begot me. <coughs> Pray, my dear, quoth my mother, have you not forgot to wind up the clock? Good God, cried my father, making an exclamation, but taking care to moderate his voice at the same time. Did ever woman since the creation of the world interrupt a man with such a silly question? Pray, what was your father saying? Nothing. You might think that a novel, as I say, beginning with an act of conception, would give a representation of childhood. However, in this case, it's not to be. The narrator's efforts to tell the story of his life and opinions soon become overwhelming, and he doesn't even get born until uh, several volumes in. We learn a lot about Tristan, but essentially we never see him as a child, so by life we clearly don't intend a sort of chronological um, unfolding of events. So there's a running joke uh, in Tristram Shandy uh, which concerns the theoretical work on his child's education, the Tristopedia that his father is writing. But this uh, enterprise, it's doomed to futility because the child grows and changes faster uh, than the father uh, can write. Other non-fictional <coughs> authors were more fortunate uh, in this respect. And it's difficult to overestimate uh, the importance of John Locke's uh, Thoughts on Education, published in 1693, right across uh, the 18th century. Locke's views that education should employ a child's curiosity and could be a source of pleasure rather than a series of burdensome tasks was an important element in what, in what historians term the new world of children in the 18th century. I noticed that one of the um, postcards that they had in the Booth banter uh, yesterday was Alan Orchard's um, did, did children always exist? Um, and I suppose this is a kind of, well, yes, uh, they may always have existed, but they're always kind of modulating. They're not the same. So there was a new world of children in the 18th century. And the phrase refers to an intensified interest in the education of children, as well as the production of books and other commercial objects designed specifically for them. So from the 1740s on, you really begin to get books written specifically for child readers. And it's not surprising that in such books we hear children's voices in a sustained way for the first time. Sarah Fielding's The Governess, or Little Female Academy, published in 1749, is a work that was in its seventh London edition by 1789, and it remained in print right until the early 20th century. So very well-known kind of bench, benchmark, sorry. Um, very, very well-known um, uh, work. Um, it's the first full-length novel written for young people, and it's also uh, the first school story, if you think of the kind of long traditions of chalet schools and all the rest. It all began uh, with, with Sarah Fielding. 
Um, so what's kind of interesting about this um, book is that there are these little girls and they're in a, there's only nine of them. It's a very select little academy. Uh, and when the story begins, the novel begins, unfortunately, they're fighting in a rather undignified way, you know, tearing strips off each other um, because they've been given a bowl of apples. Sounds familiar. And they're fighting over who gets uh, to have the most um, desirable one. And what happens subsequently is that the older girl, Jenny Peace, again, a rather uh, suggestive name, uh, encouraged them to understand that quarrels succeed only in producing misery, whereas by endeavouring, and I'm quoting now, to please and love one another, the end is happiness to ourselves and joy to everyone around us. To, to explain how she came to this way of thinking, Jenny proceeds to relate what she calls the history of my past life. And in the days that follow, the gatherings in the garden continue, with each of the students telling her life story, these accounts alternating with the reading aloud of fairy tales and other narratives. So it's a kind of um, like a reduced salon. You know, you've got all these figures, they're, they're sort of talking about stories, they're telling each other fairy tales, and then they're offering critical analysis of what's been going on, saying which bits they liked, which bits they didn't like. Um, now, Fielding's narrative has occasioned criticism, so, you know, particularly, I think, you know, in the 21st century, we tend to think very strongly of telling one's own story as a very empowering act. You know, I'm telling my story, you're hearing my story. But of course, it can also be a kind of disciplinary act of self-criticism, uh, which it is to some extent um, in, in fielding, because the little girls tell their stories in order to identify their faults and to overcome them. So it's a kind of... Um, um, exercise um, of, of that kind. But the heavy didacticism of the work does not obliterate its success in establishing each of its little narrators as having a history, a particular point of view, and a distinctive voice. And the youngest of all the little ones is Polly Suckling, who's only nine. Um, and uh, I think she's nine, she might even be, she's only eight actually, sorry, I was misrepresenting her. Um, so she gets to tell her history um, last. I hardly remember anything before I came to school, for I was but five years old when I was brought hither. All I know is that I don't love quarrelling, for I like better to live in peace and quietness. But I have always been less than any of my companions ever since I've been here. And so I only followed the example of the rest. And as I found they contended about almost everything, I did so too. Besides, I've always been in fear that my schoolfellows wanted to impose on me because I was little. And so I used to engage in every quarrel rather than be left out, as if I was too little to give any assistance. But indeed, I'm very glad now we all agree because I always came by the worst of it. And besides, it's great pleasure to me to be loved, and every miss is kind and good to me, and ready to assist me whenever I ask her. And this is all I know of my whole life. <laughs> so uh, that kind of gives you a, a flavor. Um, this is one of the shorter, maybe less sophisticated of the, of the histories. 
Um, and then when she finishes, all the girls applaud her. So it's really about you know, becoming a community, not quarrelling, uh, getting on with, with one another. So Fielding's achievement in writing a book for children that represents them as speaking characters was to be emulated by other women writers, including Anna Letitia Barbeau in her Lessons for Children, Sarah Trimmer in her Fabulous Histories, and the Irish writer Mariah Edgeworth in her many works for children, beginning with the publication of The Parent's Assistant, or Stories for Children, in 1796. Nowadays, uh, the best known of all uh, early 19th century novelists is, of course, uh, Jane Austen. And if you cast your mind back to your readings of Austen, or quickly skim in your mind through images of TV adaptations or film versions, you will most likely conclude that there are no children in Austen. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing about Austen that she attained such canonical status that there are you know, really quite extensive discussions of the things that aren't in Austen. Um, it's a, a kind of recognizable um, form of criticism. And um, so these absences, like where are the servants in Jane Austen? Where are the Napoleonic Wars? in Jane Austen? These are legitimate questions, by the way, but it is kind of interesting uh, to focus on an absence rather than a presence. I suppose an, an absence of a kind is what I'm going to be talking about uh, for a minute. Apart from one important exception, which is Fanny Price in Mansfield Park, we do not see any of Austen's heroines as children, and that makes sense insofar as Austen's novels are all marriage plot uh, novels. And barring the account of Fanny's childhood, we meet all her heroines when they are of marriageable age. So it's about to begin the uh, forming of the marriage. Nevertheless, there are some children in Austen, and they feature in subtle, suggestive, and silent ways. Emma Woodhouse is Austen's most favoured heroine. She's handsome, she's clever and rich, um, and as you'll know, if you know that line, she's lived 21 years without very little to uh, vex her. And as a consequence, she's very fond of her own opinion. So I'm going to read just a little extract from Emma, in which Emma, the heroine, has quarrelled with her neighbour, mentor, and by the novel's end, her lover, Mr Knightley. Um, they've actually quarrelled about Emma's interest in matchmaking, um, uh, which has sort of backfired um, in, in some ways. But anyway, Mr Knightley has come for dinner at Highbury when Emma's sister and her husband, who is Knightley's brother, I hope you're following this, it's two brothers and two sisters, are visiting uh, with uh, their children. So Emma is contemplating Knightley's arrival and the fact that they've quarrelled. But it was time to appear to forget that they had ever quarrelled. She's not going to give in, she's not going to say she's sorry, but she's willing to move on. It was time to forget they'd ever quarrelled. And she hoped it might rather assist the restoration of friendship, that when he came into the room, she had one of the children with her, the youngest, a nice little girl, about eight months old, who was now making her first visit to Hartfield, 
and very happy to be danced about in her aunt's arms. It did assist, for though he began with grave looks and short questions, he was soon led on to talk of them all in the usual way and to take the child out of her arms with all the unceremoniousness of perfect amity. Emma felt they were friends again. And uh, that gives her satisfaction and she says, what a comfort it is that we think alike about our nephews and nieces. As to men and women, our opinions are sometimes very different, but with regard to these children, I observe we never disagree. If you were as guided by nature in your estimate of men and women, and as little under the power of fancy and whim in your dealings with them, as you are where these children are concerned, we might always think alike. That's Knightley in response. And he continues, tell your aunt, little Emma, that she ought to set you a better example than to be renewing old grievances, and that if she were not wrong before, she is now. That's true, she cried, very true. Little Emma, grow up to be a better woman than your aunt. Be infinitely clever and not nearly so conceited. So the baby is playfully enjoined to be part of the conversation, but at eight months old, it's rather beyond her. Still, little Emma is a significant player, being danced in her aunt's arms and then being taken out of those arms with uh, unceremoniously um, by Knightley, uh, by her aunt's future husband, little Emma allows the narrator to turn the country house drawing room into a domestic space in which fondness and physical affection between generations is deemed worthy of fictional inclusion. She also, of course, signals the compatibility of Emma and Mr Knightley as marriage partners by prefiguring the children of their own that the couple will eventually have. So what I'm suggesting is that uh, these kinds of representations, and we do find them elsewhere um, in Austen, they're very delicate, they're quite subtle, um, but they're there. Um, and they do a certain amount of work. Um, and the work that they do is to promote or validate a particular vision of domesticity, a kind of companionate relationship between partners, but also one that includes a warm and kind of physical, playful relationship um, with children. So <clears throat> I've already mentioned the Irish novelist Mariah Edgeworth, a near contemporary of Austen's and much admired by her. Um, at one point, Austen is advising her niece is also wants to be a novel writer and uh, you know Austen is giving her advice and she says well you know really I've made up my mind to like nobody's novels but yours and mine and Miss Edgeworth's so it's a rather uh, select um, group. Among Edgeworth's varied works one novel Belinda may be considered a marriage plot novel. <coughs> It's also a novel very much interested in depicting a certain kind of domestic ideal in which children are very notably present. In fact, there's a chapter in Belinda called Domestic Happiness. So Belinda, if you like, she's out in society. She's been staying with a sort of rather dissolute, mysterious uh, society hostess in London. She leaves uh, to visit a, a family in the country. And I'm quoting from Belinda now. 
she found herself in the midst of a large and cheerful family with whose domestic happiness she could not forbear to sympathise. In conversation, every person expressed without constraint their wishes and opinions, and wherever these differed, reason and general good were the standards to which they appealed. The elder and younger part of the family were not separated from each other. Even the youngest child in the house seemed to form part of the society and to have some share and interest in the general occupations and amusements. So the portrait of domestic happiness in Belinda is based very much on perhaps an idealised view of the domestic life of the family at Edgeworthstown. Um, there were 22 Edgeworth children in all, and many of them were educated at home. So we have a family in which the elder and younger parts of the family uh, spend uh, considerable amounts of time together. Mariah Edgeworth, along with her father, Richard Lovell Edgeworth, was also an educationalist. Um, they published, they jointly published um, their work Practical, Practical Education in 1798, which was based on their very much hands-on experience of educating uh, the younger members of the family. So the Edgeworths advanced a mode of education that was based on optimistic and rational views of childhood and of human nature. So really embedded in a lot of Edgeworth's works, both this kind of uh, tract, not tract, but study of education and in her fiction, is the idea that vice is not innate. So people, you know, it's the Enlightenment view, people aren't born bad, they only become bad um, due to a faulty education. Essentially, we're all malleable, we can be shaped. Um, in attempting to provide a good education, the uh, Edwards felt, um, adults should always be guided by the children in their care and by the pupils' own inclinations and curiosity. Rejecting corporal punishment and rote learning, the Edwards emphasised, in line with Lockean principles, that learning should be enjoyable. And the child is always the best judge of what is suited to his present capacity. So really, education begins with a child observing what's around um, him or her in the home or its environs. Observation stimulates curiosity, and this curiosity can be channeled uh, um, uh, and uh, thirst for knowledge directed through conversation and dialogue either with adults or other children. So conversation and dialogue is crucial. Um, and, and they observe, we found from experience that an early knowledge of the first principles of science may be given in conversation and may be insensibly acquired from the usual incidents of life. So this kind of sense that really, you know, education isn't set apart from everyday life, that children can be educated in the family by talking to an older sibling, they talk about what they've seen, um, and they, they uh, exchange um, uh, knowledge and so on. So conversation, often between parents and children, but between siblings also, is prominent in Edward's fiction for children. Edward's fascination with actual children's voices was the basis for one of her most significant contributions to a new world of children in the 18th and 19th centuries. 
In her fiction, we hear the voices of children as they express curiosity, bewilderment, likes, dislikes, and judgments. So there, there are four main child characters in Edgeworth, Harry and Lucy, Frank and Rosamond, who appear repeatedly um, uh, across uh, many works. Rosamond, I'm going to kind of finish my remarks um, on with Rosamond. She appears first in The Parents' Assistant in 1796, when she's seven, um, and her last appearance is in Rosamond, a sequel um, to Early Lessons, published in 1821, and when that work begins, she's 11, and when it ends, she's 14. So over decades, Edgeworth is kind of developing this child character um, in various works. Of the four child protagonists, Frank and Rosamond are the more developed uh, fictional characters. And not just because we actually you know, go with them just to the cusp of adolescence. Rosamond, impetuous, affectionate, quick-witted, responsive to beauty, is Edgeworth's most credible and attractive child character. And she's also the most autobiographical character in Edgeworth, which is kind of interesting to think about when you know, Edgeworth wrote so many adult women in her works. But somehow it's this character of Rosamond uh, where we see the sort of autobiographical elements uh, most uh, clearly. So I'm going to uh, end with uh, two examples of Rosamond's uh, voice. Uh, the first one um, is from her initial, her debut, if you like, her first outing in The Purple Jar. This, uh, one of Edgeworth's most famous uh, stories, also has a certain uh, kind of notoriety, which we'll uh, get to. So Rosamond and her mother go shopping. Shopping is a new activity in the late 18th century. Um, Rosamond needs new shoes, but she sees this beautiful purple jar in the shop window. So her mother says, okay, we're only buying one thing this month. You can have the shoes or you can have the jar. So Rosamond thinks about it. She chooses the jar. The jar is brought home. Unfortunately, it is not a purple jar, so that's, I think that's a bit of a cheat, really. Um, but it's full of nasty uh, liquid, which is poured out, and then it's just uh, filled uh, with coloured uh, liquid. So, this uh, doesn't go down well with Rosamond. Little Rosamond burst into tears. Um, I'm actually quoting this story. I thought it would be nice to quote it from uh, Sinead Gleeson's collection of Irish short stories, uh, The Long Gays Back, where um, the purple jar kicks off. Um, uh, why, uh, little Rosamond bursts into tears. Why should you cry, my dear, said her mother. It will be as much use to you now as ever for a flower vase. But it won't look so pretty on the chimney piece. I'm sure if I'd known it wasn't really purple, I should not have wished to have it so much. The mother. But didn't I tell you that you had not examined it and that perhaps you would be disappointed? And so I am disappointed indeed. I wish I had believed you beforehand. Now I had much rather have the shoes, for I shall not be able to walk all this month. Even walking home that little way hurt me exceedingly, Mama. I'll give you back the flower pot and the purple stuff and all if you'll only give me the shoes. But unfortunately, 
Little Rosamond suffers uh, for the rest of the month and apparently learns the lesson that the shoes would have been more useful. However, I'm sure, no, not quite sure, but I hope I shall be wiser another time. So the figure of the unrelenting rational mother in the story has occasioned quite a bit of critical hostility. She gives Rosamond a choice, but she also insists that the girl abide by the consequences of her choice. She's not taking back the jar and the purple stuff, nor is she buying Rosamond a pair of shoes. So she has to abide by the consequences of her choice, however negative they may be. In contrast, Rosamond has been endeared to readers on account of her vivacity and impetuous nature, qualities clearly voiced um, in her conversation. To move to Rosamond's uh, last uh, fictional outing, and I think you know, in the early stories there are very clear choices that Rosamond makes, um, and they have implications and consequences, and she learns through them. Um, but maybe before talking about the, the voice and what we hear in, in this final um, instalment, just cast our minds back um, to those early novels I talked about, uh, Jack Connor and Roderick Random, where the male heroes have to leave home in order to find their home. So they have to leave, explore, and return. Whereas, you know, for a woman of this period, the domestic scene is the domestic scene. That's where you're uh, going to stay. And so the kind of maturity uh, that might be evidenced um, is actually, it involves a kind of separation uh, from those who are closest to you, uh, those that you want to please, um, those that you want to um, impress. And so the mark of Rosalind's, Rosalind's kind of maturity um, at the end of her you know, development, if you like, um, is this ability to speak up, to say things that she knows other people don't want to hear. So it's kind of small, um, undramatic in some ways, but very, um, very potent. Um, so in a particular episode uh, in Rosamond's sequel, she's 14, she goes to a dance with her brother, her mother, um, uh, and we're told she's just at that age where girls don't join in the conversation, so she's observing what's going um, on around them. Um, and then the group she's with, her very fast young set of people, they begin to disparage and, and kind of dismiss um, a couple who are Rosamond's friends, older people that they find ridiculous. And Rosamond's sitting there becoming more and more self-conscious and embarrassed. And eventually she's taunted for her silence and she does speak out. She says, I was silent because I had not the courage to speak. How I wish, added she, commanding her trembling voice, that I could be a judicious friend, such a one as Mrs. Egerton has been to me. So this kind of sense of, of loyalty and exposing oneself to ridicule um, is part of what's going on. So the heroine willing to risk ridicule to defend unpopular positions is a trope in Ad Edgeworth's adult fiction. But the representation here differs as the, young the narrative realises the young girl's discomfort and hesitation before she finds the courage uh, to speak. So Rosamond's come a long way from the purple jar to uh, where we leave her. 
um, at the end of her sequence. There's a very interesting um, article by Frances Ferguson where she talks about the moment when fiction started, when, sorry, when fiction started talking to children, um, the kind of moment when children become recognized um, in fiction. And I suppose what I've been trying to do this morning is just talk a little bit about children talking in fiction, um, which I think suggests two things. A certain view of the child and the child as being worthy of a certain form of representation, which we've seen, but also a certain view of the novel, which can be exploited as a kind of uh, cultural power by a series of women writers. So I'll just stop there um, for now.